Thank you for listening to this Calvary Aurora Bible study with Pastor Ed Taylor. We pray as you study through God's Word that you're blessed by God's abounding grace. Take your Bibles, open them to 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings is in the Old Testament. We're in chapter 16. Following along the history of the kings that came after David and Solomon, it's a pretty discouraging study because of so much failure. Out of the 19 kings of the northern kingdom, none were good. No good kings of Israel. And in the southern kingdom of 20 kings, there were eight that were good. And as you'll see today, there's this phrase that's used, you followed the evil example of Jeroboam, or something like that. They were, or, or even we'll see today, there was, you, they did more evil than anyone else. And I don't know about you, I don't ever want that to be describing my life. He did more evil than everyone that came before you. But thus we learn from the bad examples. And notice with me verse 1 of chapter 16. Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha, saying, Inasmuch as I lifted you out of the dust and made you ruler over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam, and have made my people Israel sin to provoke me to anger with their sins, Surely I'll take away the posterity of Baasha and the posterity of his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Verse 4. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Baasha and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the fields. Now the rest of the acts of Baasha, what he did in his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So he rested with his fathers and was buried in Terzah, Then Elah, his son, reigned in his place. And also the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha and his house, because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, in provoking him to anger with the work of his hands, in being like the house of Jeroboam, and because he killed them. Now after the death of King Baasha, his son Elah takes the throne. His son Elah takes the throne. We learn that in verse 8. It was the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah. Elah, the son of Baasha, becomes king over Israel and reigned two years in Terzah. And there's just this evil reign after evil reign after evil reign. And Baasha was as bad as Jeroboam. And like King Jeroboam, King Baasha could not avoid the judgment of God. He couldn't sidestep it. He, He didn't just tempt the people to sin. But according to verse 2, he caused people to sin. I lifted you out of the dust, he said. I made you ruler, but you have made my people Israel sin. It wasn't just leading them into the sin. He, He was setting up his kingdom that made people sin. And then his son comes on the scene, verse 9. His servant Zimri, commander of half of his chariots, conspired against him as he was in Terzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, steward of his house in Terzah. And Zimri went in and struck him and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. Then it came to pass when he began to reign, as soon as he was seated on his throne, that he killed all the household of Baasha. He did not leave him one male, neither of his kinsmen nor of his friends. Verse 12. 
Thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Baasha according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Baasha by Jehu the prophet. For all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Elah his son by which they had sinned and by which they had made Israel sin in provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. The fourth king of the northern kingdom of Israel was just as predicted. He was killed along with the entire royal family. And I don't want you to miss this and I want to pause here for a second to not just read over it. Because in our culture, uh, alcohol and drugs are very acceptable. They're becoming more and more acceptable within the church. They're becoming more and more acceptable within the leadership of the church. And I just want to remind you of something that's very important here in verse nine. It says, his servant Zimri, commander of half of his chariots, conspired against him as he was in Terza doing what? Drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, steward of his house in Terza. The Bible is clear. It is not a sin to drink alcohol. You can search all throughout the scriptures and you will not find one scripture in the entirety of the Bible that says drinking alcohol is a sin. But I'd also suggest if you're looking for verses like that, you also won't find a verse anywhere in the Bible that says rubbing poison ivy all over you is a sin. And you're at, Ed, what are you talking about? This is what I'm talking about. Wisdom. Wisdom. This has become such a cultural thing. It's become such a hip thing. And it's become such a cool thing that people throw wisdom out the window. You add, I'd never rub poison ivy all over my body. Why? Why not? Well, because I don't want to be itchy for the next three weeks. Smart. That's a wise decision. Now, in our culture, in our state in particular, with the lawmakers looking to increase tax revenue, they've made a certain leafy substance legal that you can wrap and you can smoke and you can find yourself completely taken out of your rational thinking by getting high. But I don't see anybody wrapping up poison ivy and smoking it. I don't see anybody going out and taking the grass in in their front lawn and smoking it. Why? Well, because of the intent. Wisdom and intent are very important things. Just because the Bible doesn't say something is sin doesn't mean that it's wise doesn't mean that it's smart and doesn't mean it's the right path for you to take. And we can take that and cover it in much, much of our decision-making in the gray areas or in the areas that we have freedom. So let's, let's repeat this. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that drinking is a sin, but drunkenness is always sinful. Drunkenness is always sinful and causes great problems for those under the influence And of course, we have to add the influence of legal marijuana, other types of legal drugs. And let me show you something and go over to Ephesians with me, chapter five, as we're reminded of the importance of sobriety and clear-headedness. In order to be useful to the Lord, it's important that our minds are clear. And, And while we'll get to verse 18, let's start in verse 15, because that's the important context of what Paul is telling the church Paul's telling the church this. 
Paul is declaring this to the church, to the believers in corrupt Ephesus, first century, filled with paganism, filled with anti-God sentiments, filled with, with those that are not willing and not wanting to follow God. Their God has put a beachhead in the city. It's called the church. A church that's going to influence and be very different from the culture around it. A church that lives, uh, the church which is made up of people that is going to live by a different principle. The believers of the church are going to live in a different king, in a different kingdom with dual citizenship. While we have citizenship on earth and God would have us to be faithful to our citizenship, ultimately and in preeminence we're citizens of heaven and we live by a different king for a different kingdom for a different end. So this is what he says to the church in Ephesus and this is what he says to the church in Aurora and for those of you listening on the radio, whether you're listening live right now on Grace FM or you're listening around the country on one of the 60 or 70 stations that our radio program is on, this is what the word of the Lord is. He says, see then, verse 15, chapter five, that you walked carefully. I know your Bible says circumspectly, but it means carefully. Walk carefully. Don't be Foolish, but wise. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, he says it a second time, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Walk carefully. Walk uprightly. Do things wisely, not foolishly. Understand the days Realize the days in which you live. Buy back the time. Live it to its fullest as time passes so quickly. Here today, gone tomorrow. Live daily as unto the Lord, moment by moment. A few years ago, a psychologist did a study. They asked 300 people this question. What do you have to live for? What do you have to live for? 94% of those people that they were surveyed said that they were simply enduring the present while they were waiting for the future. Just trying to get through today. Most people said, I'm just trying to get through today because tomorrow's gonna be better. I'm just trying to get through today because tomorrow's gonna be better. So here we are. A majority of people, 95%, would say, I'm waiting for that big something to happen, for that big breakthrough to happen. Uh, Some would say, I'm waiting for the kids to grow up and move out until they grow up and move out and then you cry as they do. It's sad. (laughs) So you're like, the kids are running around, breaking things and all over the place and you're like, I can't wait to, no, 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 just take it back. Enjoy your kids. They'll be gone soon enough. Enjoy your kids. Waiting for the kids to grow up, waiting for that big promotion. When I finally get that raise, When I finally get that place, when I finally attain that position, then. But today, I don't like it today, but I'm waiting. One day, it's going to be. And then you're wasting today while you're waiting for tomorrow. I'm waiting for that publisher's clearinghouse van to show up in front of my house and not walk across the streets. They go, wait, 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 wrong address. Bring that big check over here, man. You know how many magazines I bought? And while we're letting today slip right out of our hands, waiting for tomorrow, we're losing today. We're losing today. Paul says, you guys, walk uprightly and and be wise. 
Make wise decisions. Understand the days in which we live. They're evil. They're evil. Which path will you take? Remember, Jesus described our walk with Jesus as a narrow path. Some believe that that's just the beginning. Like it's just a narrow path. But, but he describes life as, as narrow. There's a narrow gate you come in. It's not like you come in the narrow gate and then everything wide, wide open after that. It's narrow all the way. And God is taking you down step by step, making your decisions. It's not the wide gate that everyone goes on. It's not the wide gate that everyone can fit through. It's the narrow life. It's the narrow life of holiness and righteousness. In these last days, Jesus has raised up a bride, a light to the world, and that's us, the church. But lines are being blurred today. It's hard to make a distinction of whether you're really a believer or not by your behavior, by your words. They have a whole new generation rising up, calling themselves believers, living like, looking like, sounding like the world. All in the name of relevance and all in the name of, well, whatever the popular new thing is on Facebook or some blog or some new podcast, whatever the new popular thing is. And an interesting thing happens to the Christian. The more you hang out abiding in Christ, the more you become like him. And the more you hang out abiding in the world, the more you become like the world. Now, don't misunderstand me. Even as Pastor Wayne was up here sharing about the inroads into the community, I'm in no way advocating, which would be completely biblical if I did, but I'm not. There's no way I'm advocating for us to pull out of the world, hide in our little Christian holy huddle, and never interact, never love, never befriend, never care, for those that are dying and going to hell, just like you and I were. That would be unwise. But what would also be unwise is if the believer thinks, if you as a follower of Christ think that the more you hang out in the world, the more you do things of the world, that you're not gonna become like the world, you're self-deceived. It was while this guy was drinking himself drunk. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Because most people that get drunk don't plan on getting drunk. They drink themselves drunk. Now, I don't know what level of drunkenness is for each person. And the, 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 they, they have measurements that are based on your, your blood alcohol content, about how much you weigh compared to how much you take in. So that means there's no one standard for everyone here. For someone listening to me right now, two drinks would put you out of control. For others, you've drunk so much that it would take a whole bottle to take you out. But because of, because of the diversity, you still have to do this you still have to drink yourself drunk. Nobody does it to you. You do it to yourself. And I haven't met one drunk person, not one in my entire life, especially all the years I hung out with drunk people and was one myself. I haven't met one that didn't take the first drink. You gotta take the first drink. The pathway to drunkenness is always the first drink. That's just the word of the Lord to someone listening. This is right here in 1 Kings. 
right where we are. Where was he taken advantage of? By, it looks like from the text, his right-hand guy, the guy that he trusts, the guy that's right next to him, or you could say in application, his buddy, his friend. When was it that his friend decided this was the opportune time? While he was drinking himself drunk. Now, many of you know my background. This was my background. This would have been my verse. This was my life. And it didn't start that way. I still remember it like it was yesterday. The very first drink of alcohol I ever took. It was a shared can of beer with a couple other kids graduating from sixth grade to junior high. I remember the house we were in. I remember what we were doing. I remember it all. That's where it started. If you would have told me, look, kid, this one action is going to ruin the next 15 years of your life or 12 years of your life, whatever the math is, I would have not believed you. I would have shrugged you off. I would have told you, no way. There's no way. And then over the years, that changed to, I can handle it. To over the years, no officer, no officer, I'm sober. Well, sir, come on outside of the car. And would you walk this line for me? Would you take this breathalyzer for me? Nobody would have been able to convince me. I wasn't a believer, of course. And by the time I was 23, by the time I was 23, I had drank, so, so you're looking probably 11, 10, 11 years now. I had done more bad things by the time I was 23 than most people do in their life. And God rescued me in an instant. And, and he did a work quickly. I believed him when he said I could be sober. I believed him when he told me from, the, from this, from a pulpit just like this, that I'm a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. I know not everyone has that experience where immediately uh, you're delivered from these addictions, but I was immediately and instantly. So what have I chosen to do as, as I've stepped into ministry? Knowing what the Bible says. I know what the Bible says. It's not a sin to drink. I know what the Bible says, that it is a sin to be drunk. And truly, I believe God has delivered me, and that doesn't tempt me anymore. But what have I chosen to do? I'll tell you what I've chosen to do. I have chosen to abstain from alcohol. Why? For you. That's why. For you. I could go through this whole room for every single one of you, and you go, well, I don't need you to do that for me. Fine, I'm still doing it for you. And I'm doing it for your kids. I don't know which one of your kids can't handle alcohol. I don't know which one of your kids, if they took the first drink, that it would ruin the next 13 years of their life. I don't know. But I'll tell you one thing. I don't ever want them to say, but Pastor Ed does. I don't want to stand before God. Say, well, Pastor Ed does. And then you come, well, Ed, why do you drink? Well, you know, because I have the freedom. Yeah, yeah, but you know, you're stumbling my kid. Tell your kid not to look at me. That would be great, wouldn't it? Real, Real loving statement, wouldn't it? Why don't I drink? Not because I'm so much more holy than you are. Not because I have arrived at some spiritual level and I want to look down on you. I don't drink for you. And everyone else that will walk through that door and everyone else that will come and say, will you please talk to my husband? He doesn't believe he can be sober. 
will you please talk to my wife? We are right at the edge. And I heard you on the radio. I heard your story. I don't want you to look him in the eye and just tell him. Tell him how long you've been sober. Tell him how long God delivered you. Just tell him that it's possible. With God, all things are possible. I don't ever want in my life. Because what's, what's happening in this next generation is somebody will hear that, some kid will hear, well, you know, you know you're, you're just being legalistic. I'm telling you, I'm not being legalistic. I'm telling you right now, this is forever on I was going to say on tape, but this isn't on tape. So on digital, whatever. Whatever we're putting, this, saving this on, MP3, video, wherever. I'm not doing this because of legalistic. If you choose, to, I'm not judging you. I'm just telling you. People drink themselves drunk. That's what the Bible says. I'm a living example of drinking myself drunk. Let me read to you, now, now that I'm thinking of that, let me read to you this note that I have saved, and, and I do have permission to share it. Um, I got special permission. This is a family in our church, and for some reason, the internet connection here is horrible. And I have this email, I have it saved right here, and it's titled, Email Drinking Drunk Wife Wrote It. That's how I titled it, Email. Drinking drunk wife wrote it. This was an email that was sent to me from this church. Hi, pastor. Thank you for taking, talking with me and my wife in between services two Sundays ago. I've been trying to get sober for years. I'm reaching out for help. You said you were going to pray for me that day, and I appreciate that. And check this out. Check this out. This is the last line. My wife is typing this out tonight as I have been drinking. Can you get the scene? This is a desperate situation right here in the sanctuary. A couple that has been together for years, years, up and down, up and down, up and down. And they walk into the doors here of this church and just think, well, maybe God can save us. You know, maybe God can act in our marriage. Maybe there's power over this little thing called drinking and the drunkenness of my husband. Just maybe. And they just happen to run into a pastor that has been delivered. And they just happen to come in. We get to pray with them. I tell them, look them in the eye. You can make it. You can make it. God is going to work in your life. And not a few days later, there I can picture them. I can see them at the, I can see the way that it's going on. And he's already far gone. And he's already over the edge. And he's desperate and he's wrestling because why? The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. The two are contrary to one another. He's so drunk he can't type on the computer. Would you please type this to pastor? Would you please type this because this is the end. I believe it's a matter of wisdom, church, not legalism. Why? Because that's what Paul says. Walk uprightly. Oh, by the way, the, the guy that wrote that email, as his wife typed it, has been sober for probably three or four years now. <laughs> I don't see him here right now, but I wouldn't point him out to you. Uh, but they're, they're doing great, and uh, testimony to the power of God. I mean, that's what he does. So just in case anyone asks you, oh, you know, that, that fuddy-duddy Ed, that old man pastor guy that tells everybody they can't drink. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And if they ever wonder, well, why does he say that? Now you can answer from now forever. Why doesn't he drink? I don't drink for you. And you could just look him in the eye. You know why my pastor doesn't drink? For you and for your kids and for your grandkids. 
because I don't want to stand before God and say, hey, you exercising your uh, freedoms, huh, there, Ed? Yes, sir. God, you gave me those freedoms. And then I don't know how it's all going to go down with that wood, hay, and stubble where all stuff gets burned up before the beam, beam of seed. Of, but just maybe the, some of the tears in heaven are just all, I, don't, I mean, I don't know how it's all going to go down. I don't want to know. So I don't want you to tell me either. I don't want you to find out either. Some of you need to make decisions in your life to curtail your freedoms because you love other people, not because you love yourself more than other people. You just got to consider that. How, how do I know that this is the context where Paul's saying, because verse 18, do not be drunk with wine, which is emptiness, but be filled with the Spirit. If you want to be filled with anything, if you want comfort and you want security and you want to, to have a sense of of strength or you want to be overcome by something, you want to lose your natural senses, you want to relax, you want to wind down, here's the way to do it. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Wine is a mocker, Proverbs 20 says. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. I'm telling you, the more you look at the scriptures, especially on this topic, it will be wisdom, 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 wisdom. Making a wise choice or making an unwise choice. I mean, even Solomon's mom said, it's not wise for you, king, to linger long. You know, leadership. It just breaks my heart. I'm certainly in the pastoral team and the leaders here are very much involved in the brokenness of sin. And what began maybe not as sin takes control over you. You're hanging out with the wrong people, you're at the wrong place with the wrong beverage, and then what happens? And it can breaks my heart, drugs and alcohol. What it's wreaking, what, what it's doing in society, what it's doing to our neighbors, what's happening in our churches, we need to pray for mercy. As leaders in the home, in the workplace, in the church of Jesus, being filled with the Spirit is not optional. So just come back in 1 Kings 16, would you? I didn't want to pass over that little scripture there because when did he get taken advantage of by somebody he trusted? While he was drinking himself drunk. I know that alcohol is, is a tool to take away some of the weight some of, the, some of the heaviness of life. But God uses the heaviness of life to draw you to himself, to remind you of his sufficiency and his love. And, and while you can numb yourself for an hour or two or four or until you wake up in the morning and maybe have a hangover or a headache, you still wake up to the same situations and yet you also wake up with this heavy burden of condemnation and shame because you don't want to spend another night drunk out of your mind. You're tired of it. And the Lord would want to deliver you tonight. You don't have to turn to the bottle. You don't have to smoke that joint. You don't have to take that pain medication. The Holy Spirit wants to give you the peace and the comfort. He wants to remove the burden from you if you'll just come to him. That's the key. All right, come back now to verse 15. In 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri had reigned in Terzah seven days, and the people were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. 
Now the people who were encamped heard it said, Zimri has conspired and also has killed the king. So also Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. Then Omri and all Israel with him went up from Gibbethon and they besieged Terzah. And it happened when Zimri saw that the city was taken, that he went on to the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house down upon himself with fire and died. Because of the sins which he had sinned in doing evil in the sight of the Lord, in walking in the way of Jeroboam, in his sin, which he committed to make Israel sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the treason he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Israel? He ruled a whole seven days. Why? Well, the people revolted against him and turned to Omri to rule over them. And I'm, I'm sure you've learned by now that men, people can be so fickle. They'll like you one day and hate you the next. Fickle literally, I've, I've used that word so much I finally looked it up. This is what it means, I quote. Changing frequently, especially as regards to one's loyalties, interests, or affection. Any Bronco fan will tell you there's fickleness. Because Denver is the happiest town in the whole wide world when the Broncos are winning. I mean, you go into King Super, they want to give you stuff. Take it, take it. Broncos won. Yeah, yeah, but I'm walking out with a whole cart. Don't worry about it. Elway will cover it. We love that guy. Yeah, go go buy a cart. His dealership. Yes, the Broncos. And then they lose. Whoa, man, you see fingers while you're driving that you don't usually see. People are angry. They're like, get out of my line. I don't want to work today. Fickle. Yeah, but Elway. Now, Elway. You know, it's just like, come on. Now, if you're a Dodger fan, you don't need to worry about that because they're always winning. Different sport, but... I looked this morning, I just want you to know, in case you wanted to know, the Giants are 30 and a half games behind first place. Pretty much season's over, right, Matt? (laughs) We just had some heaviness in the Bible study. I want to lighten it up just a little bit. Fickleness, seven days. Seven days. How careful we need to walk in the fear of the Lord. If you try to serve and please man, you might do it temporarily, but not permanently. It's, it's this way. You know, when, when things are going well, man, I love you, Lord. When things are going bad, I don't love you, God, anymore. And yet, the reality is, is that how careful we need to be to remember that if your ways please the Lord, he'll make even your enemies be at peace with you. You just can't please people. You can't please everyone. And if you become a people pleaser or you live by the fear of man, you'll be all over the place. And, you know, in our Bible study, if I put this together only about an alcohol-type Bible study, when you have alcohol and people pleasing, that is a dangerous combination. Because all your senses are taken down and it's not good. Verse 21. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, to make him king, the other half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, and Tibni died and Omri reigned. 
In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. Six years he reigned in Terzah. And he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemar for two talents of silver, and he built on the hill and called the name of the city which he built Samaria, after the name of Shemar, owner of the hill. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord, did worse than all who were before him. Horrible, horrible testimony. Verse 26. And he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin by which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri, which he did, and they might... And the might that he showed, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Omri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. Then Ahab, mark that name, his son reigned in his place, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Notice verse 30. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image, an Asherah pole, He did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho, laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. Ahab, while King Asa was ruling in the south in Judah, Ahab takes the throne in the north. And again, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, even more than any of the kings before him. And what a sad testimony to have. Ahab was the most wicked king in Israel. And along with his sinfully consumed wife, Jezebel, they led the nation with cruelty and rank idolatry. He even builds an altar to the king, or to to the small g, God Baal. Baal was the god of the sun and the sky. It was important to the people for the sake of their land and their crops. The God, these were fertility gods, both fertility in the land with the crops, but also fertility among the people. That's why there was a lot of sexual immorality going on because of the gods of fertility. The rain, Baal was worshiped for the sake of land and sexuality along with the Asherah poles, and we'll get to more detail on that later. But a lot of immorality. For the, the worship of Asherah, This false worship involves sexual excesses with the hopes of inducing rain and quickly uh, and quicken the ability of animals to reproduce. And this is Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Now, just as a prelude, read ahead. Because in the most dark, difficult time, the most sin that they've ever seen in their before of any king before, because of Ahab, we meet another man. And you guys have read ahead already, you know his name is. Elijah. Maybe you're in a dark time today. The darkest that you've ever seen. Darker than any of the previous years of your life. And it's a difficult time. And it's dark and difficult, the worst that you've ever had. It's in those dark, difficult times that we're introduced to the special provision of God. God sent Elijah to Ahab. God sent Elijah to the nation. 
God sent Elijah in a dark time, not in a fruitful time, not in a wonderful time, but God sent Ahab and Jezebel. What a wicked woman, Jezebel. Have you ever, ever in your life heard of someone naming their daughter Jezebel? To this date, I haven't. Never heard of, I've never heard in the mall, hey, Jezebel, come here, Jezebel. Not even a dog named Jezebel. And yet in the darkest time, God sent his messenger. So good news is up ahead. One of the most fascinating studies of the Bible is gonna be the study of Elijah and Elisha. So encouraging. Encouraging in the sense that God uses us in difficult times. Encouraging that even as we find ourselves in deep, dark, difficult, God is gonna use you. God wants to use you. He'll sustain you, take care of you. And even in ways that you could never, like already if you read ahead, you'll see the first way that God took care of, of Elijah was through a raven, an unclean bird. A scavenger. And yet that scavenger was a servant of God to take care of Elijah. You know, the Bible says that God will provide all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And we might be looking to one way to provide and we might be looking to another and it could be just this nasty scavenger bird that comes in with a big worm in his mouth and says, here, eat. It may be something completely outside of what you can think or ask. And we're going to see that in Elijah's life. One last thing. <clears throat> don't, don't just read over verse 34 too quickly. Let's read it again. In the days of Hiel of Bethel, built Jericho, laid its foundations with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. About 500 years earlier, turn over to Joshua real quick. Turn over to Joshua. About 500 years earlier, Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. This is what it says. They come into the land, they defeat Jericho, and at the end, in verse 26, it says, then Joshua charged them at the time, saying, cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. He will lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. So the Lord's with Joshua and his fame spread all over the country. And what does it say in verse 34? that Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid the foundations with who? His firstborn. And how did he set up the gates? With his son. Because God spoke his word and it came to pass. And the question I had was this. I mean, it's a pretty solemn fulfillment to have that happen to him. God said, don't build Jericho again. But was it so dark? Was it so bad? And I, 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 would lend, I would suggest that it was. So dark and so bad. Didn't he know the word? Didn't he know the warning? Didn't somebody come up and say, don't build Jericho, man. Don't do it, you'll lose your kids. Oh, what do you mean? Well, because God said, when Joshua came into the land 500 years ago, 500 years ago, you know, you think of our own country. Our own country's got 200 plus years. So double what the age of our own country is. And, and that, that's what happens in, that, that's what's happening right now. Like if somebody remind, you know, reminds us of the history of our country, oh, it was hundreds of years ago. We got a new day. Don't worry. Hey, listen, if God's warning, if somebody's warning you with something that God said even thousands of years ago, listen, listen. Didn't somebody tell the guy, don't rebuild Jericho. You'll lose your kids. You'll lose your family. 
Or, or the word of the Lord that goes to you today. Don't do that. You're going to lose your family. Don't do it. You'll lose your family. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. But I believe the word of the Lord is going out right now to say, don't do it. You'll lose your family. And here it are in such a dark time. This man pays the ultimate price for what? Building a city? Building a city? If you go to Jericho today with us, it's a dump. I mean, there's some walls there, some ancient walls that are a few thousand years old, you know, where we go and tour, and then it's just a bunch of people living there. Like, nobody's remembering this guy. Nobody's thinking, oh, wow, you know, so glad Hiel of Bethel came and built Jericho. It's not there. It's gone. Just like the Bible says. Heaven and earth, it's going to pass away. It's going to pass away. Don't do it. You'll lose your family. May that be the word of the Lord to us. So Father, we turn to you and ask for your, your affirming word on this text tonight. And even, you know, I, even as I share my own life story, Lord, I always feel like I don't, I don't do it well enough to, to, um, to convince people to stay away from stupid things. To, to think of the permanent marks, even on my own record, Lord, the permanent marks of stupid things I did 30 years ago. And I know I'm not that person anymore. I know that you've delivered me, but the world thinks otherwise. And I just pray that drinking himself drunk, God, that that word would go forth and, and people would be convinced, not by a pastor and not by some strong words, or even by a testimony, but they'd be convinced by your Holy Spirit that it is worth exercising our freedoms in a way to, to, to love and bless and serve other people. And uh, we don't want to be responsible for stumbling people in our lives, Lord. I don't want to be that. I don't want our church to look like the world, act like the world, sound like the world. But I do want us to be in the world, Lord. Not of it, but in it. That we wouldn't have some little holy huddle in a square box on the corner of Hampton and Biscay. And, and that's it. That's our relationship, some box. But rather, Lord, that we'd come in to gather, to be built up, to leave. Gather, to leave. Gather, to leave. That you would be glorified in our lives. So we submit ourselves to you, Lord, and pray for your Holy Spirit to make real your text and encourage us as we learn about Elijah. I'm so excited about studying Elijah and teaching Elijah and learning from Elijah. Lord, I want some attributes in Elijah's life to be true in my life in these last days. I don't want to settle just for, <clears throat> just for knowledge and, and just for regular and routine, Lord. I pray for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit on us in these last days, that we would walk in wisdom, that we would walk uprightly, that we would understand the times in which we live, and that we would live self-sacrificial lives for the sake of the gospel, for what you did on the cross for us, Jesus, to forgive us and transform us and change us. And I pray for the family, and they're not here tonight, but I pray for the family that have been walking in sobriety for many years now, that wrote that email, and for everyone else that can't write an email, Lord, 
Everyone else that might be at a bar tonight instead of church. Everyone else that might be having a, a, a Jack Daniels on their little chair watching some sports on ESPN. And they're not in fellowship tonight, Lord, because they're trying to drown out things. And they're trying to run away thing, from things. And this is all they know, Lord. Reveal to them that there is so much more than being drunk with wine, which is emptiness. But as a believer... They can walk in the newness of life and um, be glorified among us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been touched by this study from Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call area code 303-628-7200. Be blessed this week in the Lord.